Hi, this is Ann Hill from Dream Talk Radio. Uh, today, I feel very fortunate to interview a friend of mine and a brilliant man, Dr. Sam Kimballs. And we are going to be talking about his new book, Phantom Narratives, The Unseen Contributions of Culture to Psyche. Sam, welcome. Thank you, Ann. Good, good to be with you. It's great to have you here. I've been very uh, looking forward to this for a long time. We've been trying to schedule back and forth. Um, but I want to just jump right in and right. let's talk about why this book. So I, I should say uh, you're a psychoanalyst, you're a Jungian analyst, you are a past president of the Jung Institute, and uh, just you've, you've also written a lot on cultural complexes. Any other intro you think people ought to know about you? No, I think that covers it, and uh, as we uh, go along, they'll get some sense of, uh, of me. But uh, just in terms of the, the background for um, the book Phantom Narratives uh, and Cultural Complexes, uh, it's actually an area that I've been working with since I was a little boy, in which I had to pay some attention to group processes, uh, especially racial and cultural ones. Uh, growing up in this country, so it it uh, was there right away, right early in my my life. And it, of course, as I got older, I began to put some language and concepts to what I was seeing and experiencing. And when did you uh, decide to become an analyst? I mean, how did that? I mean, now that we're into your background, how how did that come about? Well, it was a fairly organic uh, process. I was a graduate student and uh, had uh, was in some personal psychotherapy. And uh, part of uh, what I was looking for was simply to get sort of grounded in myself and finish up my graduate work. And at uh, one point uh, during the therapy, the person I was seeing um, said, Sam, uh, you're having a loss of dreams and uh, I, I just don't work with dreams. I want to refer you to someone who does. And uh, of course, I was shocked. I didn't, one, think that dreams were that important at that particular time, but also that uh, as a uh, professional, he didn't work with dreams. So uh, he referred me to a man who happened to be a union analyst. And uh, over the time of work with him, it, uh, one thing led to another. I became much more deeply invested in the uh, kind of the Jungian view of the unconscious and of course what it opened up for me and uh, suddenly uh, the possibility of uh, training became something I considered and uh, so I, I took it up from that point of view. And you are recently off from a what is was it a two-year stint uh, as president of the San Francisco Jung Institute. Yeah actually that was uh, the years 2010-2012 so I've had a couple of years to recover <laughs> <laughs> that statue. Yeah. Well, good. I mean, it sounds like that was maybe part of the, the reason you could actually get this book out. I know um, you've been talking about this stuff for a really long time. Um, so there's a lot of terminology here. Um, there's the fandom narratives for one. There's, uh, you know, backing up a little bit from that, there's this idea of cultural complexes that you've been really instrumental in developing. Backing up from that, there's this whole idea of the cultural unconscious and the personal unconscious and the collective unconscious. So yeah. 
I, I, you know, I feel like I grew up in the um, man and his symbols generation. You know, everybody sort of who who wanted to be kind of deep and think about things read man and his symbols. Um, right, right. And so, I'm assuming that my audience and the people who just are are listening to this have some little, you know, hook to hang their ideas or their at least a general idea about what the the collective unconscious is what the personal unconscious is um so let's but let let me just start by going into actually i'm going to switch tacks i'm going to go to my original plan about starting with what what the idea of the cultural unconscious is because this is something that uh, from joe henderson and now you has sort of been developed and I think that people are fairly cognizant of what maybe uh, uh, an individual unconscious is, and we have this idea of the collective unconscious. So what's what's this middle piece? What's the cultural unconscious? Yeah, if you look back at uh, Jung's um, earlier and later writings, actually around uh, the unconscious, um, uh, in some odd sort of way, he was always interested in uh, culture. Uh, but uh, he approached culture from the point of view of his um, uh, commonalities, the archetypal dimensions of culture, which would be the common things that one finds in the different cultures and the, uh, the way that uh, uh, individual groupings or nations or uh, religions have uh, what they've done with those generalized sorts of things. So that was sort of a shared background that we all sort of were born into. Uh, and then, of course, the uh, personal unconscious was something that he uh, continued with uh, Freud, uh, who had already begun to work with the idea that we are not uh, particularly aware of most of the things that animate us and move us. Uh, and uh, he had, uh, Freud, that is to say, had uh, linked up the uh, personal lives of individuals with the things that uh, had gotten pushed into the unconscious, especially things that were painful in some particular way. Mm -hmm. Um, then uh, what uh, happened over time was that uh, Jung uh, uh, focused on those two dimensions, on the uh, archetypal and the personal, and uh, he would uh, describe cultures in terms of archetypal dimensions. And at some point along the way, one of his uh, students, Joe Henderson, uh, noticed that there was some other thing that was sort of missing from uh, Jung's uh, structure of the unconscious, and uh, he saw that as the cultural unconscious. That is to say, there's something that uh, we participate in that's neither archetypal but expressed archetypal dimension, and neither personal but expressed personal dimension. It has to do with the fact that we are all members of a group and a specific group, mm -hmm. and, it, and and that comes with a certain kind of an orientation. And because we are so identified with that group. Uh, we tend to be unconscious of its influence on, on, on us. Mm -hmm. And uh, hence, uh, it's uh, unconscious. So we become like a fish in water and we swim around in it, but uh, don't really uh, pay attention to what kinds of contribution that background is contributing to our persons. Right. And, and you know, my, you know, this much knowledge of Jung, I know that he had a lot of thoughts and impressions about, particularly I'm thinking of uh, pre-war Germany and how 
the psyche, I, I would even call it the cultural psyche, was kind of headed towards this this kind of dark place. And but it seems like he was reluctant to get into the whole idea of culture. Would, would that be accurate? Well, I, I think he thought he was getting into culture. I, th I think oh. the period you were referring to was uh, the build up to the uh, uh, Second World War and uh, uh, particularly the uh, emergence of Nazism in Germany. Uh, he was tuned into the energies and the changes in this culture and society that uh, was happening prior to the outbreak of the war. Uh, however, uh, he um, understood those changes and wrote about them in terms of uh, an archetypal perspective. Uh, uh, for instance, he uh, identified these emerging changes um, in the German culture with the god Wotan, uh -huh. uh, the storm god. And this was the god that was sort of uh, rallying up and generating the kind of uh, cultural possessions that many of the Germans, especially Nazis, were uh, tied into. Mm -hmm. So, so that uh, was a typical approach that he took toward culture, which was to look at his archetypal underpinnings and then to write about it, talk about it from that point of view. Okay. Now he got in a lot of trouble for that because uh, retrospectively, uh, looking back on that, and uh, people were aware of it at the time, uh, that uh, that time of Germany, there was a lot of uh, social unrest and poverty and those, a lot of things going on in the culture itself mm -hmm. that if uh, he had uh, somehow acknowledged and began to look at those mm -hmm. and uh, uh, link that up with the archetypal, then it would have made more sense that... Uh, to people who were reading what he was writing, mm -hmm. uh, that uh, he had some sense of what was going on uh, in their in their culture. So, yeah, he's, he's taken a lot of heat for that, and not just the German, but uh, over the years, uh, he's made uh, written and talked about Native people and mm -hmm. African American people and so forth. And but he was really looking at the, uh, uh, the cultural identities and looking at the cultural similarities and uh, amplifying those things from an archetypal point of view. Right, that's great, that's really helpful. So there's this archetypal point of view uh, that's being called cultural, and so then Joe Henderson comes in and says, actually there's this third layer, there's, there yeah. is the cultural unconscious. And that is, is sort of like the, the groups that we identify with, and they could be overlapping groups, and how um, social forces kind of uh, contribute to the the individual psyche? Is that kind of getting towards it? Yeah, you could say the social forces, uh, but an important thing to, to keep in mind, we're still talking about an unconscious, ah, right. uh, so that uh, the uh, unconscious at the level of the group is really what uh, we are uh, identifying with the cultural unconscious. Um, and uh, Joe was aware that the, by using the term unconscious and making that up with culture, he was talking about forces which moved in the background mm -hmm. and get manifested in various kinds of rituals or religious beliefs or uh, sexual orientations and racial attitudes and so forth and so on. That was all part of the cultural unconscious and also part of the cultural consciousness of the time. Mm -hmm. um, however, um, just one little uh, uh, turn of the dial, and you can see that uh, those large cultural forces are themselves organized by something. 
And uh, just as an individual has a, a personal complex, uh, uh, I was able to see in my own uh, looking at culture that uh, the cultural unconscious uh, itself has uh, complexes. And hence, uh, I introduced the term cultural complexes as a way to allow us to imagine and right. to look at how these large forces get structured by an unconscious dimension of group life. And so from that point of view, uh, cultural complexes emerged. And um, I actually had uh, for many years prior to uh, thinking about cultural uh, complexes, uh, had done lots of work on groups and group therapy, group, right. all kinds of groups. So I was aware that there was something that happens in a group situation that uh, uh, is, is more than what meets the eye, more than what we think that we're doing. And later on, I linked up with uh, another psychoanalyst-oriented toy groups, and this was Wilfred Bion, who talked about the unconscious dimension of group life. Mm -hmm. And in my work on cultural complexes, uh, and later on phantom narratives, I used uh, some of uh, Bion's understanding of group life at the level of the unconscious to sort of deepen both terms, cultural complexes and phantom narrative. Um, Partially because uh, uh, what Bion was to say is that uh, we're we're all social animals. Yeah. And uh, what's uh, interesting about that, if you put social and animal together, you get an interesting set of images. One is that uh, no matter how much we civilize ourselves and educate ourselves, we're still animals, right. and we're doing something with each other in the social domain that carries that animal instinctive part along. And, uh, but that creates enormous amount of conflicts between uh, how we get along with each other, how we serve mutual higher kinds of goals, and how do we serve personal means and ends. So the human being still has to evolve within the context of a cultural setting, but he or she does not uh, leave their instinctive heritage behind. Right. Right. So those three areas uh, sort of uh, were picked up by me in the uh, Jung theory of uh, complexes, uh, understood later to apply to culture groupings and uh, culture and uh, Henderson's idea of uh, cultural unconscious and then um, Beyond's idea of uh, the unconscious level of the right. group. So let's let's back up a little bit uh, to this idea of complexes. Now, uh, in pop psychology terms, you know, you talk about somebody, oh, she's really got a complex about that, like either a hang-up or some sort of thing that's preventing, certain, you know, some sort of repressive, it's kind of used in a negative, a little bit more of a derogatory sense. Yeah. But I also get the, the, um, the you know, the complex is dynamic. It can change. It's not like something... Uh, for instance, it's not like the archetypal world, which is relatively unchanging or slow changing. I mean, a complex, as I understand it, is more like a constellation of of, of forces or attitudes or learned behaviors or or narratives that come into a person, and it's a constellation of those, but it's also mutable. And ma'am, can you please like sharpen that up? That's about that's where I come from when I'm trying to you know get into the term cultural complex. Just uh, how off is that? Yeah. Well, uh, if you think in terms of the um, well, a, a way to start and to get the picture of what a complex is, uh, how Jung used it, is that uh, he started out. Uh, uh, studying um, uh, the, using the word association experiment in which he would 
uh, present these uh, neutral words to a patient, uh, and uh, they were asked to uh, uh, respond with their first association. Uh, so he was presented a word like a table, and he said chair, car, rider, or wheel, uh, water, fire. They, they'd be these, these simple words, uh, apparently neutral, uh, but uh, he had a little stopwatch and he would take uh, reaction time. Um, and uh, other times he would, they were co uh, connected with the other kinds of electronic materials. And eventually what happened, he, go to, he went down these uh, uh, little stimulus words. Uh, and sure enough, what would happen over and over again, that uh, he would say something like male and the, uh, the person would stumble. Uh, instead of saying female, an ordinary kind of response. Uh, he would say uh, uh, something like up and the person said instead down, he would say father or something like that. Mm -hmm. So the association began to take uh, all kinds of different directions. And then he would go back and look at it and ask people, like, you, you know, it took X amount of seconds to respond with the association you gave to, to fire or to chair you instead of the floor or sitting, sitting you thought grandfather. Um, can you say a little about that? Mm -hmm. Inevitably, when he asked those questions around those uh, uh, responses that were a little bit aberrant, uh, every, uh, most of his patients had uh, associations that were emotionally laden. Uh, so uh, what that suggested to him uh, was that uh, there's something that happens in our psychology when we uh, respond to or see something or react to something that's charged. Mm -hmm. that uh, our, our unconscious psyche takes hold of it and utilizes it to create a subjective situ situation uh, in which uh, we are at that point constellated, to even say that we're, we're mm -hmm. now in a complex. Uh, we, we, we may feel or know that we have a certain kind of response that's a little different, but we may not know why we have that response that mm -hmm. made us uh, go one way versus another. And um, that area of understanding uh, takes a little while to open up. So that's the kind of stuff that he would later on uh, uh, talk about if the patient were in the analysis or something about uh, the background to their responses. Uh, so on a simple level, so the patient comes in and sees uh, uh, Dr. Jung, uh, within a few seconds, uh, uh, the patient is treating Dr. Jung as if uh, he's a uh, father. Mm -hmm. That it would say that would be like a father complex. That Jung uh, just came and sat down, but he's treated him like a father. Right. So, so what he used to notice uh, is that um, there's something we have a psychological uh, predisposition to respond to our environments in very subjectivized sorts of ways, and most of that is unconscious to us until we become conscious enough to see what those are about. Mm -hmm. And uh, most times these complexes are very, uh, uh, once formed, are very hard to change, actually. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, it takes uh, lots of sort of working with them, working with ourselves to soften some of the, the strength of the reactivity that uh, are mm -hmm. part of those kinds of complexes. So they are automatic, they're autonomous, um, they tend to be fixed, they tend to be rigid. Uh, they tend to come with uh, the ego identified with one part of it, and the other part that's negative gets projected out to the world. So that uh, if I'm experiencing a complex that includes my attitude toward you, part of it would be identified with me, the other part would be identified with you. Uh -huh. So you get a very charged emotional situation uh, with people or groups, for that matter, in life.
Right. So it's a unit of psychic functioning that's automatically structured. And that uh, the positive side of it is that to the extent that we notice that and can begin to uh, work with that, it can release our consciousness for use in a more conscious way. Uh -huh. But before that time, it's just part of the automaticity that allows human beings to sort of be together and uh, develop their likes and dislikes and attractions and rejections and so forth of other people. And uh, most times when you talk to people about why they hate someone or like someone, mm -hmm. uh, they, they have very strong feelings about why they hate and like someone, but that it could be a complex or something. It's mm -hmm. slow to come to awareness. Okay, that's, that's helpful. Thank you for that. And so you're, you're facilitating many different kinds of groups. And I mean, I've been at that meeting, right? <laughs> it's, like, it's like a popcorn popper. Everybody's, you know, bouncing off and reacting to stuff that's not necessarily said at all. A person right. could come into the room and then suddenly everybody has feelings. And what do you do with that? And right. so that's, so that's the kind of one of the seeds, uh, one of the um, the forces that's driving you to 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 articulate more and to get into more of, of the question of well, what can analytical psychology contribute to the functioning of groups, to to helping us as social animals get along, right? Is that basically? Yeah. Well, hopefully that's the direction of the whole thing. So it moves. Uh, well, I uh, 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 got into thinking about uh, what does analytical psychology, can, uh, uh, how can analytical psychology contribute to our understanding of groups, um, and cultural groups and large groups. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, when uh, I, I, uh, I think I mentioned in the book, I had a dream in which I was um, called in to be a consultant in a prison. Uh, where the uh, uh, three psychologists uh, had been working with the prison population and they uh, had found that they were stuck and they didn't quite know what to do and they looked around and they uh, knew I was uh, analytically Jungian oriented and so they called me in to be a consultant to them. And um, so the three men were uh, uh, Charles Thompson, uh, which is uh, uh, the first uh, uh, African-American man to be president of, of the Black Psychology Association. Uh, a colleague from uh, Sonoma State University who was a hum humanistic uh, uh, psychologist. And uh, a man who was a combination of Clarence Thomas, uh, Supreme Court uh, Justice, and my father. <laughs> so, so they all three were sitting there and said, we don't know what to do. We know that the prison population is full of all these young African-American men and we've tried this and we've tried that and nothing seems to work. And so uh, that's, that was the dream with uh, what, what I have to offer. And uh, I, I knew just from my association to all three of them that uh, yeah. uh, the um, uh, humanistic approach would be trying to get people to basically uh, accept each other and support each other and listen to each other. And that's, that's all good and well. Uh, and the um, uh, psychologists uh, would, uh, um, uh, Charles would be trying to get uh, uh, people to understand psychological principles in terms of how prejudices work and how poor self-esteem generates all kinds of problems with projections and so forth. And uh, my father and Clara Thomas would just be saying, look, let's uh, get the rules and the laws and everything clear so that people know what's expected of them. 
Mm-hmm. Now, all three of those points of views can be found in the culture at large, and they're all pretty rational points of, points of views. Uh, but uh, notice that another, neither one of them have, has an unconscious in them. Mm. The idea is that if we are simply rational and try to do the right thing and teach people about what's right, that you can learn this stuff rationally. So I knew as um, an analytical psychologist that's not true. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, know, you have complexes and individual complexes, and you have cultural complexes. And uh, so you, you, we need to come up with an approach that includes uh, the idea that the unconscious is not simply in an individual's mind. Uh, it's not just in the history and the uh, amplification that comes from looking at historical and mythic kinds of material. It's actually in the culture itself. The group is alive and well with us. And so to the extent that we can begin to recognize the unconscious at the level of the group, then we have something to contribute to um, these large social problems. So that was my conclusion based on that, that dream. I love that dream. That's <laughs> <laughs> so great. Pretty shocking at first, but uh, it, it begins to make some sense. So in odd sort of way, the, uh, uh, the uh, book on co- cultural complexes and all the papers I've written and the current one on phantom narratives, all um, are attempts to sort of um, respond to that question. What is it that uh, analytical psychology has to Mm. offer in a world where uh, it's gotten very, very complicated um, yeah. with uh, globalization and social media and the large amount of uh, change that's happening and the big uh, disparities in economics. And um, uh, we're exposed to much more than we can possibly process or di- digest. And we, we basically have our regular political responses to those things, which we need to have. Um, we have economic attitudes towards those problems, which we need to pay attention to and do something about. Uh, we have religious attitudes towards those particular problems. But all of those responses have an unconscious dimension mm-hmm. that uh, we think by thinking rationally about it, we can eliminate that dimension of uh, what's activating us. And so well, at the very simplest level, what uh, um, I'm suggesting in my work is uh, simply that uh, we begin to not just pay attention to, but begin to talk about a dimension of our lives uh, like we did 100 years ago with the personal unconscious. Uh, Try to make some room for the automatic responding of ourselves in relationship to the group uh, because uh, so many of these uh, responses that groups have are just, we're in a grip of something like uh, Jung's definition of the uh, Votan is a background for German uh, mm-hmm. culture. I have one more image of that. Um, there is a, uh, uh, I, I don't remember quite the uh, uh, group, uh, but there was a uh, uh, video, maybe it's at the time it was not a YouTube, but a, a video of uh, uh, a bunch of uh, uh, punk rockers. Uh, um, and uh, they were they had all they were all dressed in the the audience was dressed in black leather garb and um, uh, the police people playing in the band were all in black black leather garb and the the music was boom 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 and uh, and they were jumping up down saying we are individuals we are individuals <laughs> we are individuals 
And um, but I thought well, this is really this is wonderful because that's the paradox that we live in all the time. We say we're individual. We I notice that the people are wearing the same kind of clothes <laughs> and the same kind of ideas come out of their mouths, and they want the same kinds of things in the culture and have the same kind of solutions that are offered for these large problems. And why is that? Well, I think the myth of being an individual only is one that gets in the way of recognizing that the group is powerful and we need to pay attention to the contribution of the unconscious life of groups to our individual functioning and to our social organization, our policies and so forth and so on. Right, right, great. So, so let's talk about phantom narratives. What, right. what how does that, um, you've got a few different uh, examples of where they come from. And I think that I love the term because it's so poetic. It's like these sort of uh -huh. wraiths, sort of, you know, passing from generation to generation or through a group um, that are, are powerful and effective. And, and uh, as you say, largely unconscious, or maybe there's a paradox, some is conscious, some is not. Mm -hmm. How do you define a phantom narrative? And how did you come up with the phrase? Well, so uh, the interesting thing is uh, I um, uh, like to talk about how the, the, uh, the title went through his own sort of, uh, 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 the title of the book went through his own sort of struggle with the publisher who, um, when I first uh, submitted the, the book, uh, uh, the publisher who uh, had uh, sought me out actually, uh, uh, said uh, we we like the proposal and we want to go with you and uh, but we have a, a problem with the term phantom. Um, and I said, what is the problem? And, uh, and she said, well, you know, phantom. We're in the business of selling books, and phantom has all kinds of sort of ambiguous associations like uh, ghosts and spirits uh, and spectrums, and uh, we, uh, we we don't think those are having much to do with what you're trying to talk about. And so it could uh, be distracting for people. Uh, at the end, they said, well, we can't come up with a better term than phantom. So you seem to have come up with a way to talk about it that uh, makes it more accessible to people. So, uh, so phantom uh, really grows out of, um, of uh, my work with culture complexes. And uh, uh, just on the basis of um, uh, a way to sort of to get a hold of it, um, uh, we're talking about something that has an effect on the psyche uh, that's immaterial. So uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's an attempt to try to get um, something represented that functions at a non-material level, but has an effect on how we think, how we feel, and, um, and what we see. Uh, and in this particular case, uh, I'm trying to, in my own mind, when I'm thinking about phantom, to give a way to represent how the group at the level of the unconscious represent itself in the rituals and the traumas and the ideas and the identifications of groups and how does it represent itself in uh, individuals. Because it's not the same thing as an individual, in my mind, the phantom is not simply um, a repression of an individual content or individual's uh, problem. Uh, but I'm trying to uh, come up with a way to help represent how the individual and his or her connection to the group 
find that they are in some ways uh, serving the group as well as serving their own individual needs. Mm -hmm. And uh, so the group makes a claim on the individual. And I, and I actually got to that through another dream, which was uh, maybe give a little sense of how a phantom operates. Um, and the first, uh, this particular dream was one in which um, I, I do share in a book, uh, uh, where, where, wherein I had uh, uh, been called to, uh, I had applied to analytical training and um, was sitting in a room full of uh, African-American uh, black Muslim men. They were all dressed in black suits and so forth. And the voice came on the uh, overhead that said, uh, 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 Dr. Kimball's the, the interview committee is uh, ready for you. So I get up to leave and I get to the door and I'm barred by a, a number of these men. Uh, and they said, we won't let you pass until you uh, show us the secret handshake. Hmm. And that will let us know that you won't forget us. And uh, it was actually the first time I, that I consciously thought that uh, what the dream was showing in its own sort of way was that, uh, that uh, my uh, African-American history needed to be remembered. And um, not only that, but I also had, a, um, had to honor a kind of a claim. Uh, mm -hmm. There was something I need to carry forward as I go forward into my own life. Um, so I, from that, I got to, to the idea and the notion that uh, uh, all of us are members of groups and um, uh, have religious beliefs or political beliefs or cultural beliefs. Uh, and uh, we feel very loyal to our group. Mm -hmm. And uh, to the extent there have been traumas um, uh, or sufferings that have been part of our group history, they have shaped our group's attitude toward who we are. Right. And um, so that each individual who's born anew in the, a group uh, comes in and receives that kind of heritage. Um, into their cultural DNA, and at some point, it begins to be articulated as part of the group's belief about who it is and who did this to us. Mm -hmm. And it comes with uh, the need to right some wrong, uh, to um, uh, release some consciousness that has been stuck in some sort of past constellation or complex. And um, that begins to represent itself, as, in my mind, as uh, not just affect, um, and not just belief, but it's an image. And the image is the representation at the presence of some sort of um, uh, obligation or uh, effects from the past that we feel as an obligation to meet in the present. And um, one of the um, uh, stories I do talk about briefly in the book on Phantom Narrative is the uh, August Wilson, Two Trains Running, uh, and I, I chose August Wilson because in his uh, writings, uh, so many of his stories have this sort of figure uh, who is not, does not exist in space and time, uh, but uh, seem to be some sort of uh, transpersonal figure that plays some sort of role for the characters in the, in the uh, novel. Um, and then if you think about a book like Beloved, Mm -hmm. uh, which uh, this uh, murdered uh, baby uh, comes back as a young uh, adolescent woman 
uh, making a claim on her mother. And the mother, in order to deal with her, has to remember the history of slavery. Right. And the process become, began to release herself and grow up, beloved in her own sort of way, uh, from the trauma of that particular history. Um, and uh, the third little thing to think about in terms of, uh, so beloved in, in my ideas of fandom, she is a fandom, even though Toni Morrison didn't talk about it as a fandom. Mm -hmm. she, my notion of a phantom as someone who comes from the past and who uh, presses on someone in the future and is typically a traumatic uh, past and the person who's being asked to take it up is someone who's related to that particular person. And then there's a whole history in uh, Europe around the Holocaust right. um, that uh, where in um, the um, uh, uh, at some point in the late uh, 70s, maybe early 70s, uh, some of uh, the um, uh, therapists, psychiatrists, and analysts were seeing patients who had all kinds of symptoms uh, that um, didn't seem to match in the DSM categories. Um, and uh, so they were at a loss to understand where these sufferings were coming from. And in the process of uh, paying attention, listening, and talking to these patients and each other, what they were to find was that uh, uh, many of these patients were uh, third generation uh, descendants of a Holocaust survivor. Uh, so they uh, had the Holocaust victims. And so uh, they were, had carried in their own culture DNA the memory and history of, um, of uh, uh, this horrific thing that had happened that's not had been finished processing during the lifetime of the Holocaust victim or the, or the family member. Mm -hmm. And so they had in their own cultural DNA a, a, uh, an obligation, a demand from the past to take something up right. and uh, to bring it forward in a, in a way that was healing for the current generation. Now I think of all that of those as phantomatic processes. These are not actual uh, people who are saying you have to do this. These are felt experiences, sense of things, some felt sense of history. And I think that gets represented as phantoms. And if uh -huh. we had time to go into dreams and fantasies and so forth, that's, there are lots and lots of examples yeah. of how phantoms function in our lives. Um, and so it brings in a, just one other little piece that's very important is that uh, so we move from cultural complexes to phantoms. Cultural complexes tend to have within them the issue of uh, suffering and trauma. Um, and to, to relate to cultural complexes is one way to release the group from being bound in a certain kind of traumatic past. Mm -hmm. um, the phantom narrative comes, brings with it a demand something be done with what happened in the past. Right. So, so it is a, there's a, my attempt is to uh, describe something that pushes for consciousness mm -hmm. in the present. And, uh, not, and the healing of traumatic trauma in the past is to do something in the present with the issues that have given rise to the, uh, uh, the phantom in the present. Right. So it's proactive, it's consciousness developing um, was consciousness raising at that, at that level and potentially very, very healing. Mm -hmm. So from that point of view, we, have a, we can have a positive attitude toward the group. That is, that it's not just one big nymphum poop, 
which is Jung's term for the group. Uh, but uh, uh, it, there's something happening there. But we simply have not had the psychological um, tools and emotional capacities to take up these forces and begin to talk about these problems in a, in a, in a different way. So I know that's a mouthful, but that's uh, sort of the, the territory that uh, Phantom Narrative seeks to cover. That's great. That's very descriptive. So it sounds like, and in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, okay, this is a really useful um, orientation and perspective on whatever group we happen to be in, whether it's just one of our, you know, our cohort, you know, our friends, or whether we're actually in a group situation trying to work for a specific set of goals or, you know, institutional setting. Right. It sounds like, correct me if I'm wrong, the first step in using uh, this concept of phantom narratives as a tool for healing would be telling of stories. And that there's some sort of ritual component, almost in in terms of just having a process, a mechanism by which a certain obligation can be released. Is there more to that? How would you frame that? How do you at yeah. uses? Yeah, I tend not to um, uh, approach it from that point of view. Although that's a useful one if you get people to if you put mm -hmm. the framework out and say this is what I'm wanting us to use the group for is to generate. Uh, memories and histories and stories that may be relevant to us today that come from our ancestors or our, uh, history and, uh, and see what sort of obligation or duty that we have mm -hmm. to those stories. So that that's can be done at that level, but I think our, uh, and, uh, uh, the most basic level is to become aware that we're unconscious of who we are in groups and the mm -hmm. effect of groups on us. And, um, uh, what uh, uh, BN was to show is that uh, uh, there's enormous amount of anxiety in being a member of a group, uh, and uh, the uh, managing the group managing that anxiety is part of what makes us unconscious uh, because we don't want to violate the group or go opposite of the group or something like that. Mm -hmm. But uh, so if you if you have to get the unconscious piece related to for it to have any kind of dynamism. Uh, and then the stories become pretty self-generating because uh, people begin to articulate what they're what they do remember in the context of what they're feeling. Uh, you know, so the first step is really to come aware that one has an unconscious, and secondly, that one has an unconscious as a level of the group. And mm -hmm. then uh, just you can look around the culture at any particular time. I think the last year or so has been very, very interesting. Yeah. Um, with the offensive number of African-American young men who have been killed by police officers. Mm -hmm. And uh, one wonders, now how does that occur in such a, uh, a clump uh, at this particular time? Right. Well, uh, especially the time we think uh, we have made some progress. We have an African-American president. Um, we uh, have a more educated population in a way. Uh, social media had put the world together, and yet we have this very old, uh, backwards, uh, racist sort of, apparently racist sort of thing happening uh, with our police department and our young men, the same young men that those three right. uh, consultants were concerned with. And, and by the way, we still have a large representation, more African-American young men in prison than in colleges. Yeah. Um, 
So you have these shootings, and uh, uh, it's a very interesting thing to try to try to understand where all that's coming from. And uh, of course, the communities tend to uh, divide the African American community and the white community in terms of what's happening there. Uh, but inevitably, what ends up happening when we get down to the in the case of uh, uh, Ferguson is that there is some sort of systemic thing that was structured into how the officers were induced to respond and treat African-American citizens. And mm -hmm. the African-American community, there was uh, a history of feeling uh, mistreated, not treated, not seen, made invisible. And so those forces sort of come together to, to, uh, to enact a cultural complex. Ah. Um, so, um, uh, so all of that's, right there daily in the news you can see them being the one what are the forces behind these kinds of manifestations mm -hmm. um and i don't know if you were remember that uh, about two months ago or maybe a little longer there was a an episode that appeared on um, the uh, cnn i believe where uh this uh fraternity group was going on a little trip um oh yeah right and um they uh, uh were recorded singing right. uh, about uh, they would never have an end on their on, in their group, right. never have an end in their group until the last one hung from a tree. Charming. So, so you say, well, how could this in, in 2015 be a very educated boy next door, these uh, people saying this sort of stuff? Um, well, I think if you were to ask them directly, say, oh, no, we don't believe that. That would be the right. conscious attitude. But from the point of view of the unconscious cultural complex, it's a good example of something that lives, that's autonomous, that mm -hmm. sort of pops in, and it shows that the unconscious is alive at the level of the culture around these particular issues. So one interpretation could be that um, uh, it's as if, at the, uh, this would be to adopt what's called an archetypal point, it's as if the archetypal pressure uh, to express through the culture uh, this ongoing illness has reached a certain sort of tipping point. Hmm. And, it, and so it's sort of pushed out into our faces and uh, we, we can't help but see it. Uh, and, but what we can help is to, is to not ask the question, what's going on that right. makes this happen? But from the point of view of the psyche, we have been given an opportunity. So in that way, uh, cultural complexes um, sort of push for consciousness. And mm -hmm. the phantom that's behind that is would be the image representation of that. I'll just uh, give you one more quick association. Sure, we, don't, yeah. we don't have to go into all that. But um, uh, I recently did a, uh, uh, a little thing on diversity. And um, uh, I uh, talked to a colleague about doing it. And he said, well, uh, and he knows my work. He says, Sam, have you, do you remember uh, um, Strange Fruit? Mm. Strange Fruit by uh, Billie Holiday. I said, I, I do. He said, just play that mm. uh, to start with. And mm -hmm. I did. Now, what's remarkable about that is about hanging, right. lynching, and the strange fruit of the black men on public tree. So, um, so, so there you have this sort of odd sort of thing that's happening. Mm. And um, uh, so in listening to her this time, I've heard that song many times, 
I could tell that she herself was a phantom. Hmm. She, the reason that song has stayed for all these years is that it speaks to a haunting presence mm-hmm. in the background uh, that she was able to convey from 1939, I think, was when she first sang it publicly. And then someone was telling me that her father was lynched when she was a little girl. So, uh, so there's the personal piece, but the cultural piece is mm-hmm. there. And then we go forward to 2015, and we have the, the man singing on the bus right. with the kids. So what all that shows is that the uh, history is not something in the past. Yeah. It's alive in the present, and, how, and we keep recreating it until we can uh, develop the consciousness that can recognize that we're actually responding to something that has a force and intentionality. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing that will help us to develop the capacity to hold things and to process things and to talk to each other in different kinds of ways. Hmm. Brilliant. And it's not going to change just by looking at it rationally, just by looking at it humanistically, just by looking at it policy-wise. There is this deeper piece that needs to 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 be acknowledged, to be understood. Yeah, well, all those are aspects of machineries of our conscious, our cultural life, we do actually need some place to stand for the rational approach to human life. Right. And uh, so where things can be transparently put out there. But I think a thing, other part of it to look at is that um, the, uh, the policies and um, econo- economies and uh, religions all themselves have in them um, structures that support the dominant point of view. Mm-hmm. And uh, so they're not, they're not uh, without their um, politics and their biases and their uh, uh, allegiances and that kind of thing. Wow, great. Um, thank you so much for explaining uh, your theories, your insights, your ideas. Uh, we've been talking to Dr. Sam Kimball's, his book, Phantom Narratives, The Unseen Contributions of Culture to Psyche. Uh, Sam, do you have any uh, events coming up or ways that people can get in touch with you if they want to know more or if they have a group they'd like to discuss <laughs> or anything? Well, just uh, contact me through my uh, office uh, in um, uh, Santa Rosa um, or through my office in San Francisco. I do have okay. things coming up, but uh, not in the immediate future. I actually have uh, a couple of things I've done in uh, Europe. I've written a paper and uh, have um, another interview similar to this that would be at uh, a conference in Europe in December. So I'm still cooking, but uh, uh, best for people to contact me directly at my offices. All right. Very good. Well, Sam Kimball, thank you so much. Thank you. And it's fun to be here. Okay. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Dream Talk Radio. I'm Ann Hill, and you can find all of my podcasts at dreamtalkradio.net. If you like what you just heard, please let others know and leave a review on iTunes. And if you want to know in advance who I'll be interviewing next, you can find out on the Dream Talk Radio Facebook page. Thanks for your support, and thanks for listening.